Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Bannock Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, that book is available as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written uh, some stories for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now a Zombie Story, uh, or my five-volume serial horror story, The Book of David. Uh, if you're curious about that, The Book of David is broken up into, uh, like I say, five volumes or chapters, and the first chapter, The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, uh, is available as a paperback, or you can download that ebook for free. Or if you like, just check the back catalog toward the start of quarantine. Uh, I recorded uh, an audiobook version of that, which you can listen to uh, for free. Um, this has been... I'm. I'm Recording this October 3rd uh, of 2020, uh, this has been an absolutely crazy week uh, for news and, and, and politics, uh, and I'm not a pundit. I won't get into it, but I would prefer that we just uh, uh, get straight to um, talking about uh, fiction and um, my guest, uh, author uh, Margie Preuss. Because uh, this is an amazing conversation. It is was recorded uh, well ahead of this week. So although she shares a story about meeting Joe Biden and voting early, obviously we didn't know that this week was in store for us. So we're not commenting on anything that happened during this week. Um, what we are going to talk about uh, is all kinds of great stuff. We talk about uh, writing historical fiction. She shares uh, rules for writing historical fiction. She tells us about her writing house. Uh, we talk about her time learning from fiction legend John Gardner. Uh, we talk about her work writing and producing children's theater. Uh, at some point, there may or may not come up a ghost story. All kinds of great stuff I can't wait to share with you. Uh, so let's put this crazy week in American history behind us for a little bit and just enjoy the show when it starts now. Margie Price, how are you this evening? I'm very good, thank you. And you? Well, uh, to the show, <laughs> I am wonderful. I am thrilled to chat with you. I've been looking forward to it all week. Had it on my calendar. Oh. Uh, as soon as uh, Sunday night gets here, I'm going to talk with Margie Price. It's going to be a wonderful time. <laughs> good so far. Where I always ask our guests to start is I don't summarize uh, other people's biographies and other people's books because I'll make a mess of both. So if you would, give esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background. Okay. Um, most of my adult life, I spent working in theater, actually, um, as a writer and a director of a comedy theater. And uh, before that, children's theater. And so I did. I started writing. I published my first novel um, in 2010. That's not when I started writing it, of course. <laughs> but that's that's when I started publishing um, work for children, uh, books for children, and and for young readers. So um, yeah, I've did. I've done a lot of other things in my lifetime uh, before I got a real job. I. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we want to go there. Um, <laughs> well, what kind of things were you doing? I'm curious. <laughs> well, um, let's see. I taught swimming and water safety in remote Alaskan villages. 
I um, was a model in an art class. I taught dance. I um, studied dance seriously in my younger years. And um, I, um, <laughs> I tried breaking horses. That was didn't go well. <laughs> well that sounds, that I just thought like I could. You know, I just thought I could. Why not? <laughs> I knew nothing about it. Uh, <laughs> I am a master at breaking video game horses. I haven't tried a real one yet. <laughs> oh, is there such a thing? I, I would like to try that. <laughs> Red Dead Redemption 2 or Zelda Breath of the Wild gets you set right up with all the horse breaking you can stand. <laughs> oh, that's a game for me. It wouldn't damage my head so much as the one I tried, the real thing. Anyway. Yeah, you'd have to hit yourself with the controller before you'd be in <laughs> Simulate, simulate hitting fence posts. Although the right. advances they're making in virtual reality, I have no doubt they'll be a get kicked in the head game sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. That's what when, we need. Uh, when did you? When did it occur to you that you wanted to write? Obviously, you were writing plays and and I think operas uh, for children uh, for a exactly. while. Exactly. Just when did, when did I just to... wrote a short libretto uh, for an opera that's going to be done virtually. Um, there's something called the Decameron Opera Coalition, which you can Google and find out. You can buy tickets. The we're number one. We're the first opera, um, and it's a lyric opera of the North. Um, it was really a blast. It's horror, romance, comedy in 12 minutes. <laughs> An opera and then we'll libretto. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, do you know when that'll be? Uh, yeah. on fire? October 9th is when it, uh, that one airs. And then it'll, they'll continue each successive Friday. Uh, there's several, I, I don't know how many opera companies are involved, but there's a, num a number of opera companies. And there's, so there's three Short, 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 short operas um, each Friday night starting October 9th. Oh, very fun. Yeah. That was the Decameron Opera Coalition. Coalition. And that'll be available October 9th, esteemed audience. So mark it on your calendar and, and, and get ready to have your heart swell with uh, uplifting music <laughs> about horror comedy and, and romance, you said? Or, yeah, horror comedy romance. Is it too late to get some horse breaking in there, or is that ship sailed already? That's <laughs> gone. We're done with that. <laughs> when uh, when did it come to you that you wanted to write books for children? Probably when I had kids. Um, I I already had a love of children's literature from taking the the my favorite course as an undergraduate was children's literature, and um, and then I. As I mentioned before, I worked in children's theater and I wrote uh, pieces. We toured around all over northern Minnesota and later Wisconsin and uh, went to schools and performed these little shows. A lot of them were based on children's books. Don't I, I'm not going to say what the books were because I don't want anyone coming after me for <laughs> copyright <laughs> purposes. <laughs> but uh, they were all, it, it, all educational. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was a long time ago, too. Um, so I was familiar with what was, you know, uh, well, I had a love of children's literature. And then I had kids and what read we read to them, you know, all the time. And uh, that love was kind of re reborn and made me want to want to try my hand at it, writing something myself for kids.
Of course, by the time I got pit, uh, published, my kids weren't kids anymore. <laughs> but there's still a lot of kids in the world that are readers. So, um, you know, plenty of kids to read my stuff. You seem to be finding them, I think. Uh, <laughs> I think you'll be all right. So 2010, that's when you debut. When did you start uh, writing uh, for specifically books? Um, when did I start writing? Because I assume you, you had you must have had some kind of writing routine down just from all the, the scripts and things. For, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know, I was always writing. I actually went to graduate school um, at the Writers Workshop in Iowa and then um, transferred to uh, state uh, to Binghamton University in New York, where John Gardner was teaching and took his workshop. And oh, wow. so I, I got my M.A. in in writing and so I, you know, I was probably going to, I don't know what I was thinking I was going to do, right? Novels? I, I don't know. And then um, that, I, I was there when he was killed in a motorcycle accident. And so everything just kind of fell apart from, for me. You know, I just quit. I quit. I left school. I did get my MA eventually, but I left school and I, um, I just kind of, I, I quit writing. I went back to theater and for a very long time. <laughs> so, the, but during that time, I wrote some stories that were published in, you know, magazines and journals and, uh, yeah. And so I wasn't, I was always writing. John Gardner, that's a name that I'm, I'm sure most, uh, of esteemed audience, so since we're talking primarily to a lot of uh, writers out there, I got to be poking their heads up like, "Ooh, I've read him." <laughs> so, what was the experience of being taught by John Gardner? What uh, did you have or something that you took away from him? He was a really great teacher, um, and it was a long enough time ago <laughs> that I don't know if I can um, remember very, very much that would be useful, but. Um, one thing I really loved about him is he would say something very emphatically, like you should never, never do this or that. Just never do it. You know, of course there are exceptions. <laughs> and then he would, or he would then contradict himself in the next sentence. And he would say, I know I'm contradicting myself. Um, but he was, um, the one thing that I, I remember, especially from him, and I have it on a sticky note stuck up near my desk is uh, he's, I went to see him in his office one time and he said, I hope you're not going to any of your other classes. Um, you know, cause I was taking a full load of graduate courses, Shakespeare and Victorian writers and you know, what off. And um, I have that, I, I kept that. And I, I realized once I started writing novels, exactly what he was talking about. You write a novel, you can't go to any of your other classes. You have to just write, do that one thing. And so what what that little sticky note tells me is this is what you're, you know, when I'm working on a novel, this is what you're doing. So you have to, there's a lot of things you have to just set aside. Whatever you can set aside. Yeah, good luck with, uh, with children. <laughs> it's, yeah, you can't set aside children, uh, but you can set aside housework. <laughs> <laughs> and cleaning your attic and you know 
uh, a lot of other things that can wait. Oh, frequently I find that when I'm sitting down to write, if it's, if it's a bad day, it's not coming that day, uh, or I'm, I'm distracted, then the dishes were never more crucial. They, they must be done. My God, what, <laughs> what am I waiting for? <laughs> well, it is up. much, it's always easier to do the dishes. <laughs> when you're writing, since you're trying to limit as many other activities as you can do, are you still reading for pleasure or do you read when you're not writing? I try to read um, as much as I can. It is, you know, that is a really tricky thing because I, I feel like you need to read. I need to read um, and I want to read. But um, but when you're writing and especially I think with a novel, there's so many words to be written and it's time consuming. It is hard to squeeze in reading. Of course, I'm always reading for research no matter what I'm writing. So there's that, but um, I read, I always read before bed um, or in bed before I go to sleep. So what, uh, well, I wanna, I wanna talk about your writing house because I'm fascinated about your, <laughs> your writing house, but what does your average uh, writing day look like? And maybe also tell us about the writing house. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've always been really jealous when I hear writers say, well, I get up and I have coffee and then I write from eight to 11 and then I go in and have a quiche and then I you know, smoke my pipe and then I do my correspondence and you know, like, their, their day is just so neat and tidy. And I find that my day is just always a, a mess of crises. And <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> there's always, I mean, don't other people have crises to deal with? You must, if you have children. Um, sure. what, yeah. uh, what kind of crises are, are we talking about? I don't know, just something breaks or there's, you know, you spill bird seed down the basement stairs. I, yeah, there's just always something you have to deal with. Um, you know, I don't know, mice. <laughs> anyway. uh, yeah, I don't know. So um, dog, yeah, you know, the dog has to go to the vet and there's car brakes. My speaker has gone out in my computer. You know, all those sorts of things that you have to deal with. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have much of a schedule, I guess. That's what I'm getting around to saying. Um, by right so there's not a firm clock-in time. Here I am at the writing house. No, I mean, if I have nothing else going on, I just go out there and I work. I like to be, I especially like to be there in the morning because the sun comes in in the morning and it's lovely. Um, and warm. <laughs> this is northern Minnesota, so that's a plus. Um, but uh, yeah, it a lot depends on where I am in the writing process too, or what I'm doing. Like you, you do. You, I know you, that you were interested in talking about the business and the writing part of writing. There's like creative writing, and then there's business, or you know, going through copy edits, or um, you know, making sort of those kinds of decisions. And uh, there's a lot of time spent on both promotion and back in the day when we used to go to schools. <laughs> uh, 
you know, a lot of school visits and um, appearances and things like that, that you're kind of always juggling and emails and communicating with people about. So um, that takes a certain amount of time. Uh, it takes a lot of time, actually. So I, I'm kind of jealous of my writing time. I do try to squeeze it in when, whenever I can. And Just, is your family at this point respectful of your writing time? Um, <laughs> you're out in the writing house. It's time to leave mom uh, alone until, <laughs> until yeah. it's done. Or? Yeah, the, the writing house is really good for that. There's way, way less uh, interruption. I mean, my kids are grown now. But thanks to the pandemic, they were home for five months. And uh, and so, <laughs> but they are all creative people working too. So it was kind of interesting. It was, a, the house was just full of this creative energy of people doing their various creative endeavors all over the place. And thankfully I had my little writing house so I could go out there. Because otherwise I'd, you know, it's pretty much constant interruption. Because you're still mom, no matter how old, or dad, no matter how old your kids get. <laughs> I, I found that to be true during the pandemic. So, um, do, you, are, do, you, do you insist that you write every day, or if there's a day where there's multiple crises, you've got uh, school things lined up back, back in the before time? <laughs> Uh, you've got other things you've got to do on the business side. Are you comfortable with, hey, today is just not a writing day, but it's still an author day because I'm doing authorish stuff? Or, yeah, I do. I would like to be able to write every day, but I I can't sometimes. Um, and then I just have to sort of give my permission, you know, rather than just feeling frantic or guilty all day that I didn't get any writing done, I just have to say, you know, <laughs> I got I got to do this other stuff. So. Yeah, no, I'm not. I think there are a lot of writers I know who really make a point of always writing every single day. And uh, I'm not one of them. Well, it's working out for you. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get there. You've got three books just, just this year, so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's going fine. <laughs> uh, but before we do, I, we've got to talk about this this writing house. Um, oh, yeah. For folks that are interested, they can go to your website, which is... My uh, name, Margaritpreuss.com. Yep, M-A-R-G-I-P-R-E-U-S. So they can go there, and you've got a lovely tour that you filmed. Uh, so we we can all marvel in jealousy at your beautiful <laughs> uh, writing house. I think it started off as a writing closet originally. Is that right? Oh well, <laughs> yeah. Um, when my kids were little, we lived in a little house, and um, I my office was in a closet, a literal closet. And I would shut the door and say, okay, mom is in the, her writing office. Don't interrupt unless it's an emergency. And then, you know, five minutes later, bang, 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 bang. It's an emergency. I can't find my socks. So, <laughs> so all the time they were little, I would say, oh, I wish I had my own little house to go to. And um, then they grew up. And well, when they were about when they were teenagers, we moved into a big house. So now we have a big house. And then one of my my youngest kids came home when I was in Japan, actually. Um, and I was doing school visits there right after um, Part of a Samurai, I think, came out. And uh, he built 
he built that while I was in Japan, or he started it anyway, and it was finished when I got back. Um, Did you know <laughs> it was going to be there, or was it a total surprise? No, it was a surprise. Yeah, it was a wonderful surprise. But it was it was also kind of ironic because now I have a big house and there's nobody in it, <laughs> and I have all kinds of rooms. But I still, I would say, I still recommend if you can swing it and you have room and, and you can, um, you know, find a place and the money to build one, a uh, little house is the best thing ever. Because when I'm out there, I don't think about those dirty dishes in the sink or the closet that needs to be cleaned or not that I've ever cleaned a closet, really. <laughs> but <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, it's just a good thing I have a big house so I can just put, you know, keep putting things in other rooms. Um, it's, uh, it's very, it's a wonderful way to really go to work and be at work and not um, be always aware of your household tasks. Well, I can't imagine that there's a fan of yours out there that uh, would be comfortable with one or two less books, but you having more cleaner closets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you really have to decide, you, you know, you have to make some priorities. And uh, sometimes you, I would like to have a very tidy house, but somebody else would have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and so 2010s, when the, the first book comes out, was that The Legend of the Lady Slipper? Or have I got the word wrong? Yeah, I, th I think that was the first one. Here it is. If, now that all the books are going to fall over now. Um, <laughs> that, that one. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of a funny story because this is a, originally Lisa and I were going to write a big fat book about trees. Not not a nonfiction book about trees, but a collection of tales, fairy tales and folk tales about how trees, different trees came to be or why they are the way they are or why the leaves change color or why the birch has black stripes and things like that. Um, and then we would have information about the trees as well. So we were compiling what would have been this tome and... Um, we wrote on the letter to the editor, we just scrawled on the bottom that we had just found uh, a beautiful little, it was just the tiniest little paragraph of a tale about the lady slipper in one of the books we'd been looking at. And that we thought it would be fun once we were done with the big tree book that we would do one about um, wildflowers. But our editor really just only wanted that one. <laughs> about the lady slipper and so that became that became this book so what's the path that gets you to that debut novel did you have an agent at that point i did have an agent but she didn't sell um heart of a samurai what happened was i was at a, uh, an scbwi conference in minneapolis and i was listening to an agent talk his name is stephen fraser and I just loved what he had to say. And I, I just, I had an, I felt, I, I had a warm feeling about, you know, like friendly, like he seemed like he would be nice. And so um, I raised my hand and I said, 
I said, what happens if you already have an agent, but maybe you want a different one? <laughs> and he said, oh, that happens all the time. You know, don't worry about that. It's business. You know, it's business. And so I um, sent him the first page of Heart of a Samurai and a postcard that's uh, on the back said, I would like to read more, and a little checkbox. No thanks, and a little checkbox. This is back when we used to send things in the mail. <laughs> Remember that? Unfortunately, all too well. And all the uh, little self-addressed stamped envelopes that came yeah, back as well. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he sent, uh, he sent the postcard back with the check, I would like to read more. And so then um, he became my agent, and he, and he sold Heart of a Samurai. Not, it didn't take him very long. Um, so that was, um, that's how that happened. Um, it, you know, kind of, okay, a little interesting side story. I think it's interesting. Um, an agent or a, a, an editor at FSG had expressed interest in the book, but she didn't want anything that wasn't actually true, you know, that didn't actually happen. And um, so I had to take out all the the bullies <laughs> because the, I made those up <laughs> I, because I couldn't find anything historically that said that this or that person had been a bully or, you know, had treated um, my character in Heart of a Samurai badly. And um, so I took all that out and sent it back. And, and she said, well, it just doesn't have enough conflict. <laughs> And so um, back at your head straight through the desk. <laughs> <door>. <laughs> um, anyway, that so that didn't really go anywhere. So um, when uh, Steve sent it to my editor, who, the editor who took it at, at um, Abrams Amulet Books at Abrams, uh, he said, you know, this what this story needs are some bullies. <laughs> And so I stuck them back in like that, you know, I just put those chapters back in and sent it off. And um, afterwards, I realized, oh, he's going to think I write really, really fast. <laughs> like, I finally had to confess to him, you know, I already had those those parts done. All I had to do was, you know, kind of put them back in and re rearrange or massage everything, as my husband would say. Um, <laughs> He builds things and he says, we'll just massage this. I was like, how do you, it just doesn't seem to fit with building things. But anyway, um, so I had to kind of piece that back together and send it out. And then he took it. Stephen Fraser immediately recognized the brilliance of the work and said, this will <laughs> definitely go on to be a Newberry honor. Let's do this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think, I, I don't think any of us saw that coming. I didn't. That's for sure. Well, did you have, uh, I'm assuming you had some sort of feelings toward the book that obviously you were proud of it. You, you must have thought that it was destined for some kind of greatness or do you oh go the gosh. opposite? Oh my gosh, no, way? I, no, I did not think anyone was going to read it. That was the first thing. I, I seriously, I thought nobody's going to read this book. You know, this, it's just oddball. Okay. I don't know. I just didn't. And I actually hoped that no Japanese person would ever read it because I was petrified that it would be, you know, wrong somehow. And um, obviously you got over that before you went to Japan and were. Yeah, uh, well, I had, well, 
that was while I was writing it. But then I have a very good friend who's Japanese who lived across the street with me. And she read everything. She gave me lots of good advice. And then before, you know, before it was published, I went to Japan. I went to where he was born. I talked to a lot of people. And so, you know, by the time it was published, it had been pretty well vetted, um, you know, and I, I felt pretty solid, like it was solid. And uh, but I didn't I didn't think it was going to. No, in fact, I didn't even start writing another book because I just thought, ah, you know, nobody's going to read it and I'm not going to ever get another contract. So back to theater. I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but um, <laughs> yeah, no. And I and and the other thing is I totally did not see the Newberry honor coming at all. That was also back in the day before all the Newberry, um, mock Newberries and social media and all the all the blogging and the chit-chat about who, what's who's going to win. It just didn't happen. Or if it did, I was completely oblivious to it. So it, well, that sounds it, like a better world. <laughs> it actually, yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, I think it's hard. Um, it's hard to have the buzz and um, that kind of heightens an anxiety, you know, I don't know, just makes makes one a little more um, aware of that. I mean, I, the obliviousness was lovely. I'll just say that. <laughs> so you who are about to um, uh, to go on to greatness, who are th- what are thinking that you're going to go back and maybe just do theater uh, and, and, and forget about writing uh, for a while. When, um, what, uh, let us live vicariously through you. Because this is something that I, I enjoy and I like to provide this for esteemed audience. So we all want to know what is that feeling? What Take us through getting to the point of being a Newberry honor and what is that experience? Well, I would say, you know, it is amazing I uh, to have that affirmation, um, especially because I was convinced that it was just kind of a, you know, I had written it, but it was nothing special and lots of other much better books out there. And um, to to have the affirmation that I had written something good <laughs> was, it really did change the way I looked at myself as a writer. I could take myself seriously and I could say, well, I guess maybe I do know what I'm doing sort of some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I still doesn't feel that way though when I'm writing, I'll tell you. Um, and of course, it was a great boon in terms of publishing. So you know, my my publisher offered me another contract without me having written anything. Um, well, sure, they'd be fools not to. <laughs> <laughs> but I I found it sort of simultaneously thrilling and uh and 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 mortifying i mean i was just pet petrified that i wouldn't be able to do it you know um but actually this the the next book that i wrote was shadow on the mountain and that uh it was a joy it was a joy and uh, i think largely because i was working so manjiro is a real person he's the hero of part of a samurai and so my editor kind of pushed me, to, not pushed, but suggested that I try writing another book 
based on the life of a real person with a lot of adventure and, you know, excitement in it and action and um, maybe have a, you know, another boy protagonist. And um, so I thought, you know, I thought about what I'd want to write and I had long been interested in uh, the resistance in Norway, which hasn't gotten a lot of, there aren't tons of books written about that, um, especially not for kids. So it seemed like an opportunity. And I, uh, by luck, uh, got introduced to a man who had been uh, involved in the resistance when he was just a teenager. And so I met him. I went to Norway and I met him and interviewed him. And he was just, the, he has passed away since, uh, which is one of the reasons why I feel like writing a, real stories about real people who are involved in World War II and the resistance, like my newest book, Village of Scoundrels, based on real people. You got to get those stories while you can, because these are, they are elderly people now, and, um, you know, we're losing them, and we're losing their stories as well. So, anyway, that, that's, that, novel was just a joy to work on but largely I think because of being able to write the story of this really amazing human being that I could talk to and um, just to get to know him was really wonderful so for um, uh, all those out there who, who might one day hopefully breathe this rarefied air uh, oh, oh my god I'm a, I'm a Newberry honor uh, and now you've got to write the second book. How did, because that had to be daunting uh, to be <laughs> it how was. you're going to live up to that. How did you get past that and, and get the book produced? Uh, yeah, I actually, um, one of the working titles of that book was Get a Grip. I'm <laughs> 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 just like, ah, you know, um, well, you know, it was really interesting uh, challenge for me because Heart of a Samurai, I worked on that for years. I mean, many years. And so, you know, because nobody was waiting for it. I didn't have a deadline. I would put it away. I you know I was teaching. I was directing a theater company. I had kids at home. So not like I worked on it every day. But over time, you know, I worked on it for, for years. And then Shadow on the Mountain, I had a year. Uh, that was my deadline, and so it was, <laughs> was really, um, that I think, though, that it was good for me as a writer because that made me get into the habit of art, as um, Flannery O'Connor calls it, you know, where you could just sit down and you, you bring your inspiration to it. You don't wait for your inspiration to come to you. You're there, you're ready, you write. And um, it also really, it just became my life to write this book and then each successive one as well. And that's how I became, that. that's how my life became the writer life. Um, but it was very frightening, yes, because, um, but I guess I, I work under pressure. And I think theater has helped me learn to be able to do that, to produce something in a short amount of time and just have faith that it's going to happen and it's going to come together eventually. 
Well, writing theater for children and then watching them watch the thing you wrote, that had to give you some kind of insight on what type of storytelling <laughs> works for them and what doesn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I was usually not in a uh, theater. I was directing most of my life, so I spent a lot of time watching the audience and and gauging their reaction to things. And I do think about that when I'm writing. I mean, I think about, uh, you know, what what does the audience see when the curtain raises, basically? When that when they open the page and they start reading, what do, what is the scene? And um, I also really believe in having act, active characters, both on stage and on the page. Don't, you know, hardly anybody, except in this digital age, do you sit in one place and talk to somebody like we're doing now in 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 most situations you're doing something at the same time you're talking to someone um you're you know peeling carrots or shoveling the sidewalk or you know um cleaning the house cleaning that closet that you've never cleaned <laughs> <laughs> and shouting over your shoulder but um and that comes from theater is just having a real awareness of what are your characters doing? How are your characters getting on stage? How are they getting off stage? You know, where are they? What are, um, and how are they engaging with each other? All of that is just the same in a novel as it is on stage, really. And the other, well, another real helpful thing about the way I did theater is that I wasn't uh, doing plays so much, although I did some of those, as um, as it was like sketch comedy, sketch comedy for kids and sketch comedy for grown-ups, <laughs> two different theater companies, but same principle, which was an ensemble of actors who improvised or and or wrote scripts and then improvised on the script and the script got changed over the course of the rehearsal period. And that really helped me with with getting used to being edited um, because- Were you comfortable with that or were you in the back with your arms folded? That's not what I wrote. <laughs> no, I was so, so, so used to it because in theater, I would write a script and bring it to the ensemble and they would, they'd improvise on it and change and change the lines and people would draw, you know, write on it and, uh, it would undergo so much change that it would hardly be anything like what I wrote to begin with, but it would be much better, better and funnier. And so I still um, your name on it, right? So <laughs> and, yeah. well, we uh, back in those days we were all just you know a company kind of writer writing together, but um, yeah, I so I learned from that that other people can help you. Um, and they're probably going to help you improve what you've done. And you just sort of let go of that ego thing of, well, no, I wrote that. And so it's precious. Um, that, and so no editing is, has never been, uh, hard, uh, for me. I mean, I don't always accept everything that an editor says, but, um, but I choose my battles. And I don't fight everything at all. Mostly they're right, I think. And sometimes it's just like, ah, oh, of course, you know, and that's why we have editors. There's a very, very healthy outlook <laughs> that I bet makes that collaboration a lot easier. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it. I I want my editors, I want rigorous editing. I want an editor to really look at things uh, closely and really, um, I, want the, I want them to help me. I rely on it. We are absolutely going to talk about the Silver Box, the third uh, volume in the Enchantment Lake Mysteries, uh, available October 6th. I realize that at this point in the conversation, um, any publicist who might be listening, any agents who might be listening, start to get a little bit nervous that we're not going to talk about it. We're absolutely going to talk <laughs> about it. But I want to ask just a little bit more about historical fiction before we do, um, because I something you said, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Um, when I talk to uh, people who are braver than me with atten more attention to detail to write historical fiction, I prefer just fiction. It's, it's all made up. You can't say it didn't happen. Who, who knows? Um, but when you're telling a story and you get to a minute point, like we can't have bullies in here because we don't have uh, the documentation that these bullies were really in the story originally. What? How much leeway do you give yourself? You're going, you're talking to people in person, you're learning their stories, you want to make sure that you're true to them, but you're also creating your art. So where where's your comfort level with how much the story needs to serve your art and how much it needs to preserve history and be accurate? Well, I do have rules. Um, oh, about <laughs> Yeah. And I get very upset when I read a book by someone else who uh, you know, historical fiction based on real people. And they don't follow my rules because I feel everyone should. Um, <laughs> well, they will now. <laughs> they better. Gonna tell them. All right, here are my rules. Um, I, no, I really do try to um, follow that life as closely as I possibly can. And the way I do start, and this is, you know, you asked earlier, how did I get through my second novel after Harvest Samurai, which was Shadow on the Mountain? I, what I did was I wrote down the scenes uh, that really happened with... Um, my character and this real person and I and these are going to be my major scenes you know this happens this happens this happens this happens and I kind of wrote those scenes first and then figured out how to make them stick together and so all of the major scenes well that might not be entirely true but <laughs> the the really um pivotal scenes are things that really happen. And um, so I tried to, to, to look at the life as it really was. And, and um, I won't have anything happen to the character, you know, anything major happen to that character if it didn't really happen. I'm not going to kill them off in a way that, you know, that if they died somehow, I'm not going to kill them off in a way that they didn't die. You know, that just seems wrong, totally wrong to me. And I have read books, in fact, very well-regarded books where that's happened. Um, and not well-regarded by you, it sounds like. <laughs> not by me, not by me, but, you know, even Oprah. So I, I won't say titles because actually I can't even remember. But um, and um what else? I, I just don't, I won't have really uh, major, I just won't have major things happen to a character if it didn't, if it didn't happen. I feel, um, I try to, when I need to add scenes like the bullies, for instance, 
I you know, like here's this kid. He's from Japan. He's in a whaling town. The whaling community was very unhappy with Japan because Japan was isolated at that time and would not allow any whalers, uh, you know, any Amer anybody, any foreigners at all in their near their country in the waters around their country. So um, the whaling community did not have high regard for Japan. And now here's this Japanese kid in their midst. I didn't think that everybody would be nice to him. Plus he looked funny, he talked funny, he had funny habits, you know, he was really different. And he had to go to school with the little kids. And he was, you know, 14 years old and he had to start elementary school with the little kids because he didn't know, you know, he didn't know how to read and write English. So I figured he was going to be teased and there were going to be people who didn't like him just because of where he had come from. So I didn't feel that I was doing anything uh, much of a stretch there to, to have bullies um, in his life. Um, so yeah, so uh, if something like that's going to happen to a character, I just want it to be uh, highly possible that something like that could have happened. That makes absolute sense to me. <laughs> uh, when I had uh, Avi on here, and I never get tired of bragging about it, check the back catalog of Steamed Audience. It's a great episode. Uh, but he said that he will start a scene. He'll look up what the weather was on the date that he is writing the scene, so he makes sure that that sets the the tone. Do you, do you do that, or is that? Oh yeah, I have looked for moon. You know, like what was a moon, sunset, sunrise. Um, what you know, holidays were going on. I I spend I do kind of an immersive experience when I'm writing about another culture. So I will, I watch a lot of movies. I read novels that were either written during that time period or set in that time period. Um, and I um, like with, when I was writing about Japan and my, the two books that I wrote about that, I drink green tea. I, <laughs> I listen to, you know, music, I read lots and lots of folk tales, which is something I always do in any culture I'm writing about is read, read their fairy tales and their folk tales. Uh, I feel like you learn a lot uh, about the culture that way. And um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I watched so many World War II era movies when I was writing um, Shadow on the Mountain that my kids made me watch Dead Snow. Do you know that one? You should the know zombies. it. Zombies. They're oh, sure. Zombies That's the Nazi zombies, right? Yeah. Nazi zombies. <laughs> <laughs> they said, okay, we, if you're going to, we will, we refuse to watch any more of these World War II movies unless you'll watch this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So then funny. zombies, of course, made their way into your book because you had the... <laughs> almost, almost. <laughs> I leave that to the professionals. Yeah, in other words, you. You can write the zombie books. <laughs> it's, um, I've seen, I, I don't remember if this was in an interview that you did or, or a standalone video, but you were talking about, you were in your writing house and you had your computer up, so it must have been the tour. Um, and you were talking about how you would do research on the computer while you're writing, because you write uh, handwritten first drafts, right? 
I do, yeah, mostly. Um, it kind of goes back and forth, but I, I mostly compose on paper with a pen. And um, I tried one time to not do that because I thought I could save a lot of time if I would just, you know, type on the keyboard. And so I tried it, and it just was a complete failure, and I had to go back and start over on paper. Uh, <laughs> and so I felt, for a long time, I felt kind of bad about how much time I was wasting. But then um, apparently studies show that more parts of your brain fire if you are writing longhand on paper. And uh, you know, apparently I need all the parts of my brain that I can get in order to write something. I don't know what it is. I just think there's so maybe a more fluid connection between your brain and your runs down your into the pen somehow. Or maybe it's because I grew up writing that way. And uh, so that those paths in my brain are more open, more well traveled. Um, I don't know why, but it's just what I do. If it's working, don't mess with it. My God. <laughs> <laughs> I have told people, you know, like if if you're not, if things aren't going well, why don't you try it? You know, because lots and lots of people compose on the computer. And I'm not saying it's bad, but I do. But sometimes I, if people feel like they're really not getting anywhere or they're having trouble, I said, just try writing on paper. See what happens. And I think okay. I'm, I'm 90, 85, 90% certain I've read so much writing advice, but I think I'm about to quote uh, John Gardner and the importance of not interrupting the, the, the fictive dream. I think that's him. Yeah. Um, and um, But if you're researching while you're, do you, I mean, do you just write in, look up later, or do you actually do the research and then go back to drafting? Oh, well, that depends. I mean, if I'm really writing and things are going, 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 then I'll, yeah, just make a note. Um, or, or I, I just know, I'll know that I need to go back there and look up something. Um, but if I get to a spot where I'm kind of stalled, then I'll definitely stop and, and do the research. Okay. I was just wondering how you were able to do that and then not also, you know, check your email, check your Facebook, go down 50 <laughs> rabbit holes. Yeah, I'm not, I actually have not been very good about that lately <laughs> I, get, I get really stuck on news a bit distracting this year yeah <laughs> this year has been the worst for that yeah i saw that you on, on twitter that you recently met joe biden and you we've already <laughs> voted early uh, thank you. And this is a wonderful opportunity for Doreen to remind the esteemed audience without getting into the quagmire of politics that is this never ending year. Um, vote early. Get get your absentee ballot. Have a plan. I'm not talking to convert anybody. I'm talking to you who maybe is thinking about not voting because what's the point? There's a point. For the love of God, plan to vote. So uh, you go and you vote early and you meet Joe Biden. What's that experience like now that everybody's in a mask? You can't get, I, did, did you just shake hands? No, 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 no. We bumped elbows, though. Good enough. I'd take that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it was a surprise because um, I, my husband and I had been asked if we would um, 
vote early and you know if we were going to do that or willing to do that and we said yeah we would and uh, I don't know about every other state but here we can just go down to city hall and go and vote I mean in person just go in and cast your vote I mean it's kind of an absentee ballot thing but you 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 don't put it in the mail you put it in a ballot box um, it was very easy and they had arranged everything to be very safe so um, I didn't feel worried in any way and um, so and then we were going to go talk to the mayor and I thought it was a little like local media promotion for vote early and you know voting is open now but um, we first we met the mayor and then Governor Walz Governor of Minnesota showed up and we're sitting out in a little cafe table outside outdoors um, of a little coffee shop down in a kind of a touristy area of Duluth that's right down by the lake. We're on Lake Superior. Um, and uh, we had chatted and I started wondering, this is the governor, doesn't he have anything better to do than talk to my husband and me? <laughs> but, and then there were a couple of UMD, um, University of Minnesota Duluth students there too. Anyway, if somebody came and said, okay, we're gonna go take pictures now and kind of moved us to a little different area and all of a sudden the motorcade drove up and, and Joe Biden got out and came over and greeted us. We all sat down at the table again and, and chatted with Joe. <laughs> He's a very nice guy. And, um, and he talked a little bit about, you know, his plans for the future and, um, I feel that he's, you know, has, has good ideas for moving us in the right direction. He, uh, spent some time chatting with little kids and you could just see how much he loved to talk with the kids and the kids were loved to talk to him too. Um, he's very down to earth, kind of a humble guy and, um, speaks in complete sentences. Oh my God! What a what a what pleasant change of pace that might be. <laughs> it was lovely. It was quite lovely. Yeah. I, I noticed that you you do you tweet about politics. You you you're very open about your politics, who you're voting for, all that good stuff. Do you ever worry about that impacting your author brand, or do you care? Um, <laughs> not now. No. <laughs> I mean, the stakes are. So so high and now is n not a time to be silent and uh, not a not a time to be quiet I mean the country is um, well first of all the climate I I worry that we can't we can't have another four years of uh, of the current administration and hope have much hope for our planet it's just too dire we and we need to get on top of that right now um and our democracy is uh it has really taken a hit uh i feel we really have to get that back on track as fast as we can too or lose lose what we've worked hard to to gain and over the years um yeah i just don't think that now is a time to to be quiet we just all have to make a noise and we all have to vote and we all have to stand up for what's right 
I agree, and I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> so, okay, 2020, uh, absolute dumpster fire. We're in agreement on that. But <laughs> in the middle of that dumpster fire, here's you with three new books. So what is that experience? Were these three books in the, the worst year of, of, of uh, uh, whatever? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's very funny how, how it all happened. I So I, last uh, 2019, on my birthday... I um, asked my sister-in-law, who's an astrologer, astrologist, I, whichever. I will accept either. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to do my chart. So she did. I've never had it done before. And she you know, said, oh, you're going to have a very creative, you're going to have creative time and you're, you're going to be on the top of your game. And um, she, it all seemed very, very rosy. But then she said, no, tell me the dates of your, when your books are supposed to be published. And I said, end of February and end of March. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. You have to change that. You have to call your publisher and make them change the dates. And I kind of pressed her, you know, like, I'm like, wow, you know, they put it in the, they put it in the catalog and they've got a whole, you know, plan and, and, um, you know, I don't, think I can really ask at this point to change all that and um, she goes no no you really have to and so I pressed her I tried to press her why uh, you know what why are those bad dates and she just said I'd rather not say <laughs> and so I didn't do anything about it you know so um, sure Does enough, that you with dread at that point, or are you a bit of I'm going to pay much more attention to her in the future. Um, what? I, I'm just asking. Yeah. Is that you with dread at that point, or are you a bit more of a skeptic, having fun with your your chart being done for the first time? Yeah, I yeah I I'm a skeptic. Yeah, I guess I'm a skeptic, <laughs> but not so much a skeptic that I wouldn't you know do it and. Uh, I mean, I think most of those things are sort of like um, the I Ching or um, tarot cards or, um, you know, things like that, that you can kind of um, make of it what you will, you know. And um, uh, I, I think sometimes it's sort of like guidance more than this is going to happen to you. That's, that's kind of the way I feel about those things. But... Um, yeah, so anyway, I didn't change the date. <laughs> and so those books came out and, you know, nobody's paying any attention. It was it was kind of a uh, rough, rough time. But we'll see how they do in the long run. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I hope they'll find their right audience and their right readers and people who will appreciate them. Well, this is good stuff. We, we mentioned Village of Scoundrels, and I am absolutely tickled by The Littlest Voyager. Uh, if you want to tell the esteemed audience a little bit about that one. Yeah. So um, there it is. This, was, this came out the end of March, and um, it's about a red squirrel who stows away on a Voyager canoe. And those of you who don't know Voyagers, um, these were hardy folk from um, that traveled the waterways from Montreal to Grand Portage, Minnesota, and beyond. But my story is from Montreal to 
Grand Portage. And so they travel on waterways and on the Great Lakes in the big birch bark canoes um, back in the oh, kind of 1700s to the 18 through mid 1800s, maybe. Um, and uh, they traded for furs. So, uh, it, which is shocking for this little guy to find out. <laughs> he goes all the way, 2,000 miles, to get to find out that what they're trading for are the furs of his brethren. So you'll have to read the book to find out what transpired. That's a hard day for a squirrel. It was a hard day. It was a bad day. It was a bad day for the squirrel. Uh, but it, that's a, it, it's a lot of fun. And... Um, yeah, just a, it's a lurk. <laughs> do, uh, do your rules of historical fiction still apply when the protagonist is a squirrel? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can write about anything. This one, I, uh, Village of Scoundrels, we talked about, it is also based on the true story of a village in France that um, sheltered many hundreds, possibly thousands of Jewish children and teens rescued from French concentration camps. And it's really about the teenagers in that village um, who were part of the rescue effort. So there's a several protagonists in this one, but they're all based on real people. And I was able to interview some of them, uh, which was quite uh, an amazing experience. And Hannah, who was one of the people that were sheltered in that village, also attended a seventh grade class in when I was in New York City, right when the book came out, right before the pandemic. <laughs> right before the pandemic, and I was going to schools in New York City. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Um, Thank goodness. Anyway, she, she was amazing talking about her experiences. Um, so that was a, a real highlight, too, of this whole experience. Something I had read that she said, and, and I, I promise everyone who's listening, we are going to talk to Silver Box. We absolutely are. October 6th, esteemed <laughs> audience. It's either available now or you should be pre-ordering. Um, but uh, you had said that, uh, I, I don't know if it's maybe a thematic concern for your work, is that you're, you're fascinated why some triumph over adversity while others are crushed by it. Uh, so have you at this point formed a hypothesis for why that might be so? Uh, no, that's why I keep writing. <laughs> no, you <laughs> were to... <laughs> supposed to give me the answer. <laughs> it's a, no, I, no, really, it is a reason to write is to try to get into that spirit, you know, to find that spirit. Uh, where does it come from? Why do some people um, have it and others don't? And there doesn't seem to be any logical reason really um that uh that for for that you know i mean with heart of a samurai manjiro and four fishing companions and the four others they did not have good lives you know the experience pretty much crushed all four of them but manjiro the fifth had a stunning life and it and it wasn't by it wasn't by happenstance. It was him. He made that happen. So why? I don't know. 
<laughs> but I mean, I I think I tried to show that his curiosity and his openness, his openness to people, to new experiences, to um, being willing to uh, try to understand other people, and um, and try to bring people together as he did when he got back to Japan to try to um, show that we're all that we are all alike really under the skin so uh you know the all of those things worked in his favor fair enough well, when you figure it out come back and tell me and then <laughs> it will be much calmer <laughs> maybe it's just a matter if we've got to get the 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 astrological astrological charts um, we've got to up our game. Maybe get a, a new app design that will that will make them more precise, and then you'll know just at, at, at age eighteen. Okay, how much? How long am I going to live? <laughs> and when happen? should I have those books come out? <laughs> Take a look at the chart. And, Ooh, better write fast. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, uh, as promised, my God, let's talk about the silver box that is available October 6th. Uh, and um, you've got a launch party that will be happening on the 6th. So we're, this is going to air October 3rd. So everybody that's listening to it as the show comes out, God bless you, esteemed audience. I love you if you're finding this after. I love you, too. I'm glad you're here. Um, but um, where can people go to attend the launch party for the Silver Box? Well, um, there's a link on, there'll be a link on my website and on Zenith Bookstore, which is sponsoring the launch. Um, so it's, uh, you can find Zenith Bookstore in Duluth will, will also have it. You can find the link on my Facebook page and, uh, well, I'll put it everywhere I can figure out how to Put it on to. <laughs> well, I'll drop it in the show notes as well as team audience. So check there, and it'll be there for you. Yeah, yeah. It's a crowdcast um, event. It's free, and um, anybody can attend. You just, but you do have to register for it. And the really cool thing uh, that's recently found out is that the illustrator, the guy who comes up with these fabulous covers that's the silver box there's two other books in the series all with very beautiful covers yeah and the covers are great now all my books are going to fall over now there they go okay <laughs> uh so this is the first one enchantment lake you just want i just want you to be able to see the cover or should i describe them for the listening audience um, they're really the listening full. audience has access to the Google. These covers are worth seeking out, esteemed audience. Um, <laughs> the Clue in the Trees, Enchantment Lake, and the Silver Box. Head to Mar- uh, Margieproyce.com, uh, and you can uh, you can view them there, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, so he's going to be part of the launch and talk about anything anybody wants to ask him about. Um, but um, I love that the clues are in the book and I tell people if you you should be able to figure out the mystery just by looking at the pictures on the cover <laughs> but I probably not really so we'll do that and um, you know I'll probably t- talk a little bit about the other books and maybe I will 
uh, you know, wear a voyageur cap on my, and have us puppets and uh, birch bark canoes and, or a beret when I talk about village of scoundrels and what else? Oh, yeah. And then we get around to the silver box, <laughs> the mystery. Do you wear those hats when you write these stories or is this just for <laughs> afterward when you're talking about them? No, I just do that to wake people up. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. We always have some fun. I I usually either have a quiz or sometimes I've had uh, treasure hunts and I'm thinking about that um, for this one. I haven't quite figured out how to do that virtually, but I'm 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 working on it. So we'll do something like that, and it won't just me be me talking head. Well, I think that would be highly entertaining if, if that's all it was, but to find out there's more, even even better. <laughs> uh, I, as true to my word, I won't I won't uh, uh, describe your biography and I won't describe your book. I, I'd mangle it. So if you would, please tell esteemed audience about the uh, Enchantment Lake series. Okay, yeah. Well, Enchantment Lake is a uh, fictional, sort of fictional, sort of... Um, not so fictional lake in northern Minnesota where these mysteries take place. And so my character, who's 17, her name is Francie Fry, and she's kind of a Northwoods Nancy Drew. Um, she first comes back to her uh, aunt, great aunt's lake cabin when she thinks they're in danger because people along the lakeshore are getting murdered. And um, so the stories are very regionally based, although you don't have to know anything about Minnesota to enjoy them. But people who do live here recognize the scenes of swimming, boating, berry picking, uh, lost kayaks, eerie noises in the bogs, poisoned hot dishes. Uh, hot dishes are casseroles, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> That's what we call them here. And... Um, and murder, you know, so sort of typical northern Minnesota lake life, mosquitoes, all that stuff. Um, but there's always a murder. <laughs> sure. oh, wait, there one. There's well, not always. And um, so they, the, the each book has a mystery that's solved within the pages of this book. But there's also an overarching mystery in all three of Francie's family. Her mother disappeared when she was very young. She doesn't remember anything about it, but she and she's been told since she was little that her mother died, but she suspects that's not true. And as we go along in this series, it becomes more and more likely that uh, her mother is still alive. So by the end, in the silver box, Francie is pretty convinced that this box is going to reveal to her where her mother is. Will the silver box reveal where her mother is? You have to read the book to find out. Obviously, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> 
an epi something, go to all the trouble of writing yeah. two books and then just spill it on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So each one is, um, I should also mention that each one is a different season um, at the lake. So it's the first one's in the summer. And Clue in the Trees is in the fall. And the Silver Box is in the winter. And originally I thought that I was going to have a fourth book and it was going to take place in the spring. But it actually, Minnesota, northern Minnesota doesn't have a spring. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm serious. It kind of goes winter, 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 summer. So... Um, there, this one is mostly in the winter, and uh, there's a little coda at the end, um, so we get the little tiny bit of spring, which is very well suited for our climate at the very end. And are you content now that you have um, finished, you've satisfied the story, you're good to walk away to do something else, or is there maybe still a possibility for fourth, fifth, and sixth book? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> I heard 10 more books is what you're going to write. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you know, uh, Francie's going to age out. She's she's graduating. She graduates at the end of this book, um, the last book so from high school. So then she gets to be kind of, then she gets to be a college girl. And I don't know, that seems a little, a bit of a stretch for my audience, which I think is really more middle grade. Um even though she's 17, I, um, I think it's a, I think the sweet spot with the readers is like 10, 11. You know, it's like Nancy Drew, which I read about, I think, when I was about 10 or so. It was exciting to read about Nancy Drew driving in her roadster. She had a boyfriend and, you know, <laughs> it felt kind of like being a little voyeuristic in the high school. Uh, high school world. Well, I read some Nancy Drew when I was younger, then I would immediately uh, return to the Hardy Boys, naturally. <laughs> um, did you always have it in your in your head that, hey, at some point on a long enough timeline, I'm, I'm going to do my Nancy Drew? I have always loved mysteries. Um, I did like Nancy Drew, and I was also a big fan of Encyclopedia Brown. Um, and those like little, little, those little tiny mysteries that you could solve yourself. I love those. And then I also, um, when I was a kid, my dad used to let me stay up past my bedtime and watch Perry Mason with him. So um, those were kind of crime stories, but they were kind of mysteries too. And as a grown-up, I love watching mystery on PBS, and I love reading mysteries too. So I think, as, as Eudora Welty said, you know, writing is, comes from a superior devotion to reading. And um, that's probably why I wanted to try writing mysteries. Is, well, it's the same reason I wanted to write for young readers, is that I loved reading those books. And I wanted to try it myself, try writing. And same thing with mysteries. I love mysteries, and I wanted to try writing I, I do have very much newfound respect for mystery writers, though, <laughs> because, uh, you know, I think they must figure out what's going, what's going to happen before they start writing, and <laughs> I never Did do. You? 
<laughs> did, you, did, did you pants these three books? Surely yeah. you must have known some of them. The only one I knew the ending of, sort of, was the last one. This one, Silver Box. Otherwise, I had no idea. I mean, like, I would have a murder happen, and I had no idea who did it. <laughs> <laughs> when did you figure it out? I don't know. You know, that's, that's that faith thing, you know? Like, you just have to fa have faith that it's going to come around. It's, you're going to figure it out. Um, so uh, that's <laughs> that's how I did it. But it was sort of kind of touch and go sometimes. Like, I, with the clue in the trees, I was really like, I just, I have no idea. But then I read this really interesting news article, which I can't really divulge because I give away, I give away too much of the book and I don't want to spoil it. But that was like, that's it. That's it. That's what's going to happen. And it's even, it's based on a real thing. So that's the, I kind of like that about it. Um, the mystery is that it's actually based on a, on a kind of, a partly anyway, a real event. And these are relatively uh, realistic mysteries. I mean, obviously, uh, Francie is a former television detective, and so there's <laughs> some not not quite fantastical elements, but uh, heightened reality maybe is maybe the word for that. Uh, right. But this this has to be a bit of a, a, bit of a departure because you don't have history to guide you and to say this absolutely has to happen. So how does that that change your process? Yeah, it is interesting. I, I um, writing about a real person has parameters to follow and you know when you're writing a real life and you have rules like I do you know you can't go outside those those parameters it has to be uh close to that uh, for me and so when you write straight fiction uh yeah, like anything could happen uh <laughs> it's like reverse writer's block you know it's not like you can't think of anything. It's like you could think of way too many things. Um, that's the hard part of writing is just, just straight fiction for me. It's just having too many directions to go. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's the tricky part is you have to, you have, you have to find a way somehow to uh, uh, so, some kind, something to follow. I don't know. I just flail around. I can... <laughs> hope for the best I wish for myself your level of flailing <laughs> I think that would be a good problem to have but did you did you write these um, uh, straight through or did you take breaks to write other things between yeah, yeah. I did I um, I was writing other things and that also made it kind of hard because I, uh, Enchantment Lake, the first book I wrote, I, I tell people it took me so long to write and I wrote it so long, such a long time ago that it could qualify as historical fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Your history anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know I did have to go through uh, and really update things at a point because I had worked on it on and off very casually. It was kind of like having a, so I have a cabin, obviously, at, on a lake. <laughs> and 
Sometimes we put a jigsaw puzzle out, you know, and then you just leave it there. And every time you go to the cabin, you work on it. And that's the way I felt about this book. Like, I would just work on it when I was at the cabin. And um, so mostly in the summer. And kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, because mysteries are like a jigsaw puzzle, just, you know, fitting little pieces together and so on. Um, so then um, that was really... Um, Bef I, I was probably working on that at the same time I was working on uh, Heart of a Samurai, I think. Um, or, you know, right along in there somehow. So a long time ago. and But then it didn't get published right away because I wasn't really finished and whatnot. Uh, so then the other books started coming, but then I was also writing other historical fiction Um yeah, it's like a little bit of a juggling act, for sure. Um, getting everything done at the same time. Or, you know, not at the same time, but you have one book you're writing, you know, composing, and another book that you're doing, you know, revisions on, and maybe a third book that you're copy editing. So it's um, that's the way it was this a year before last, <laughs> or that last year, when it, before these books came out, I don't have that situation all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you scratched your mystery itch, or are you thinking there's is it more like a uh, now that you've started, you can't stop type of situation? You've got to uh, write more mysteries. Yeah, no, I um, yeah, it's a good question. I um, I don't feel like I'm. I'm that good at it. <laughs> I shouldn't <laughs> say that because obviously I want people to read these stories. Sure, the I, silver box available <laughs> October 6th, everybody. <laughs> I, know, I know that people, I mean, I know people love them. I'm, you know, just to say that I get a lot of positive feedback um, from these stories. So I know they're not terrible. <laughs> But, well, in all fairness, I, I remind the esteemed audience, you thought The Heart of a Samurai was going to be not so yeah, great as well. I thought that was terrible, too. So, okay, you get a sense. But, um, <laughs> no, you know, I do think that mystery writers um, are probably puzzle, puzzle, have puzzle minds. Like, they're real good at those jigsaw puzzles or, or crossword puzzles or, or any kind of puzzles to put together. And I'm not really a puzzle person. So, um, and also I, I'm not, uh, organized about plotting and I think, uh, mi good mysteries are, uh, mystery writers who, you know, do series and have a mystery coming out every year. Uh, they must just really have a system, um, because it just takes me a very long time <laughs> in my flailing way to write one. Maybe I'll come up with a system and then I'll be, I'll just go for it. Five mysteries a year published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll never be that fast. No. Do you, um, when you're thinking of what your next project is going to be, do you know what five books from now, what you're going to be working on? Or do you just decide closer to the day once the previous book's finished? How soon do you know what you're doing next? <laughs> No. Uh, 
Well, I always am working on many things at the same time. Um, I shouldn't say always. I guess when I'm in the real heart of a novel, everything else falls away and I don't go to any of my other classes. But um, when I'm starting something new and I don't really know if it's going anywhere, I, I dabble in other things. So I might have several different kinds of stories going. I have a picture book, a couple of picture book ideas and working on this novel and maybe that novel or maybe this little chapter book. And I'll just kind of poke around in all of those things until something really grabs and then uh, just focus on that thing um, until I get it to a point where I wanna send it to somebody, I guess. And then I send it off and see if anybody wants it. Well, I send it to my agent and he does that. Who's going to say no at this point? <laughs> oh, no, no, I get rejected a lot. Plenty. Yeah. No, feed my myth that there's a point you can reach in your career where nobody says no to you anymore. <laughs> no, they say no. <laughs> They're very... It's very, it seems to be quite easy for people to say no. I, I, I um, definitely get rejected a lot. And you just have to, you know, uh, let it roll off, I guess. Do you? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I mean, I've been really fortunate in that I haven't um, been in a real, you know, I haven't had a long long dry period where nobody's taking anything ever and uh so it's you know i i i have hope i'm always hopeful the next thing will go will will be a hit and you know because i work on a lot of things i have i i sometimes have multiple things out so if I get one thing rejected, it doesn't mean that everything is, you know, there's still other things out there floating around. So you're and never other people, around pining for just your one book, you're, you're hard at work on something else? I'm always work. I'm always on working on something else. Yeah. And that I, th I think that's good because uh, having everything invested in one thing is, uh, yeah, that's, that's setting yourself up for heartbreak, I think. <laughs> Or joy. I mean, you know, it can go either way. Sure. All your eggs in one basket works if you watch that basket. <laughs> <laughs> <And> don't drop it. <laughs> well, I'm watching our time, and it's just slipped right right away from us. It always does. Have I talked your face off, or do you have time for about maybe three, four more questions? Uh, sure. Let's okay. do it. Uh, well, one esteemed audience knows I have to ask is, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? <laughs> uh, seen? Um, hmm. I have not ever seen a ghost, but I have had experiences. Go on. <laughs> um, well, I um, every year I go, not this year, but um, for many years, previous. I've gone on a writer's retreat on a little island in a lake up in far northern Minnesota, right on the border of Canada. And um, I, we've all been warned that there are ghosts there. So I spent 
I, I, there's a little cabin that where I stay all alone sometimes. If I'm the lucky one, gets to have that cabin. <laughs> That's just inviting ghost. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And some non-corporal being uh, climbed into bed with me one night. I mean, it was so real that I, and I was turned like, it was so real that I turned expecting it to be a friend, you know, one of my friends. And I thought I knew who it was. And I, <laughs> I turned and said her name and there was nobody there. <clears throat> What's that like after that, that moment? You, I went right to sleep. Right <laughs> <laughs> I was fine. But um, uh, the guy who's uh, who owns the island and is kind of the, is the caretaker there, he said, uh, he said, oh, all you have to do is just say, I'm only here for a few days, just, uh, and then you can have your place back. So if you could just leave me alone for the next however many days, that would be good. Just say that out loud. So, <laughs> so I did, and never had, never had another experience like that. Oh, not me. I'm inviting them on. I'm setting up cameras, paranormal activity style. Let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> so when you have an experience like that, does that give you faith then that there is uh, something after this to, to look forward to? Hopefully not just hanging out in the cabin, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to do that endlessly. Um, well, I I think it is our job as writers to keep an open mind about everything. So that's that's what I try to do. Fair I would enough. never say I would never say absolutely not. And it was a no on the flying saucers. Oh, um, I guess yeah. The only flying saucers I've seen are the ones we fly down hills on in the snow, snowy days. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are the fun kind, so fair enough. <laughs> uh, so uh, turning, turning, turning our minds back to uh, uh, earthly matters, I had seen that one of your biggest pieces of advice for writers uh, is to uh, read like a writer. Um, what does that mean? Well, I was, you know, when I talked to school kids, um, I, I say, you know, if they ask me this question, I say, first, you should always read for enjoyment the first time through. Just read and have fun. But then if you want to be a writer, go back and read uh, very carefully and try to see, analyze what the writer did to cause the effects that he or she did caused and you know created in these scenes so uh, how did this author manage to make you cry or laugh or uh, keep madly turning the pages because you just couldn't stop reading you're so filled with suspense and just look at how how did that happen what how did they arrange those words on the page to make you have those responses and those feelings and I still do it if I'm working on uh, something where I, you know, really want to tug at the heartstrings or something, I'll I'll go read a passage in a book that I know did that for me, and really study it. How do they pull that off? 
does that ever feel like um, my mother was a dental hygienist and the result of that is every time she talked to people, she would just look at their teeth uh, and see <laughs> what the style was. So does when you do that on a, on a book that you've loved, does that um, does that uh, make that experience a little bit more detached and, and diminish your love or does that increase your love for, for the artistry on, on, on display? It, it definitely increases my admiration. Um, I, I don't do that when I'm reading a book for pleasure. I just read it for the story, <laughs> like most people do. And I don't, I'm not like analyzing as I go. I mostly will read a book and then remember, oh, there was that one scene where I just was crying and crying. Um, so how did that happen? I, and I'll go back and try and find it and then read it. Um, and so sometimes it's just so amazing. It's like you can't figure it out, you know. Like I, I've had, I've gone back and looked at things, and it's like that's all. That's all there is there. That's all. And it, yet it's had this amazing impact in some way. Um, genius. That's genius. I don't know. I think that's the perfect note to end on, and I'm, uh, I've gone over over our time and, and taken advantage. So I appreciate you you being such a wonderful guest and, and, and staying around to to satisfy my curiosities with a fantastic ghost story. It's so much more. <laughs> <laughs> where uh, where can esteemed audience find you online? My website, which is margieprice.com. I'm on Twitter, same name. Same name on Instagram, same name on Facebook. Um, and I'd love it if they would come and, and we can meet again on the socials. Uh, and as always, esteemed audience, more information about the show, head to middlegradeninja.com. Find out who's coming up on the show in the coming weeks. Find out, uh, get the back catalog, everybody that's been on the show. Uh, find out more information about me. Download your free copy of Manica Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. Uh, and as always, uh, God willing that I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.